0: Almost by definition, people who clamber to the pinnacles of politics are unusual. This is not, well, not necessarily a criticism, merely an observation that possessing the determination and self-belief necessary to decide that you can or should run a country or something similar is uncommon. Accordingly, many of those people will, in such spare time as they have, do quite surprising stuff. Some of it is surprising in and of itself, some of it is surprising in that it just doesn't seem like the kind of thing someone in their position would do, or, depending on their pre-politics careers, like something someone in their position would have done. In this special episode of The Foreign Desk, we'll meet a finance minister who plays chess, a foreign minister who played basketball, and a diplomat who wrote a bestseller. Does an unusual background make someone a better leader? Does success in other fields open more doors in politics? And why do dictators write such boring books? This is The Foreign Desk. Promoting
1: India's soft power is very much a part of a diplomat's armory these days. And Indian writing in English has become so popular across the world, you know, ever since Salman Rushdie and Vikram Seth burst on the scene. For my book to also be seen as a part of the genre and for that film in particular to open up so many doors for Indian talent in Hollywood, I think has been very, very gratifying.
2: For me, being not just a woman, uh, Minister of Finance from Latvia, but being a chess grandmaster, I think uh, was easier than without this title because people have, uh good impression about chess players being a chess player means that you are a smart person yeah <laughs> so at least this is the general presumption in
3: sports actually you learn to win and more important you learn to lose you know sport develops actually work habits uh, work ethics you learn that the effort actually you invest is returned also you know and that that it pays off you know the habits you acquire in sports and the character you build are very important for any job you do later.
0: You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller, and joining me first of all from New Delhi is Vikas Swarup, an Indian diplomat who formerly served as a secretary at India's Ministry of External Affairs and as High Commissioner of India in Canada. Vikas Swarup is also the author of three novels, most notably the international bestseller Q&A, which was adapted into the Academy Award-winning film Slumdog Millionaire. Vikas, first of all, before we get to the author part, let's talk about the diplomat part. What were some of the highlights of your career postings?
1: Well, as you know, a diplomat is pretty much similar to what Monocle does. You keep an eye and an ear on the world, and that's what diplomats do as well. And I have been fortunate in my diplomatic career to be posted to four continents, to some fascinating cities such as London, Washington DC, Osaka, Kobe, Pretoria, Ottawa, and of course Addis Ababa. So from that point of view, you know it does allow you to experience the world from different perspectives, number one. Number two, as a senior diplomat, because I served as the chef de cabinet to the foreign minister of India, and then as the external affairs spokesman in which capacity I traveled with both the Prime Minister of India as well as the External Affairs Minister of India, it does give you a ringside view of foreign policy being made right in front of your eyes. So from that point of view, I think it was a fascinating experience, 35 years in the service. And I've always maintained, Andrew, that a posting is not made only by the quality of the city you are in, but by the quality of the conversations you can have in that city. And I was very fortunate to be posted in places where I could have fantastic conversations whether it was in Addis Ababa or whether it was in London or Washington, D.C. or Osaka. And of course, finally, in Toronto and
0: and Ottawa. So all that way, though, throughout this extremely distinguished diplomatic career, had you always wanted to be a writer? No, uh,
1: that's why I call myself an accidental writer. (laughs) I started writing when I was posted in London between 2000 and 2003, and my first novel I wrote when I was 42 years old. So as you can well imagine, the writing bug did not bite me till pretty late in life. I was always a reader. In fact, I never went to a creative writing workshop. I have not had English literature as my subject as well. So really, I came to writing from my passion for reading. And it was the 35 years of reading that I did that enabled me to write my first novel, Q&A, which became, as you know, in there.
0: So when did the writing for Q&A get done? Was it just you know as and when you found the time or did you make time to work on it? So basically, the writing happened when I was posted in London, as I told you, between 2000
1: and 2003. And there were two inspirations. One, of course, was the fact of living in London itself, which is such a hub for the world of English language publishing with all the publishers, all the agents based there. And the second was... Some of my contemporaries in the Indian Foreign Service were trying their hand at fiction. So that's what motivated me. I said, do I also have a novel inside me? Can I also produce something other than a diplomatic dispatch? And I wrote this novel, Q&A, actually in the last two months of my posting in London, when my wife, Aparna, and my two kids had already left me and gone back to India. <laughs> I was supposed to follow them after two months because the Prime Minister of India, Mr. Atal Bihari at that time, decided to visit London in September. So instead of going back in June, I was detained in London till September to complete the visit. And that's when this idea struck me that why not write a story based on a quiz show with a contestant who has street knowledge as opposed to book knowledge. It was a very disciplined way of doing this because I did this in just two months. So Monday to Friday, I would be at the office at the High Commission in London in Aldwych. Then I would come home and then I would do my research. And I actually wrote this novel on the weekends because... For me, weekend is the only time when I can be creative because that is the time when my phone does not ring. I do not have any distractions. Nobody's calling me to, you know, there are no deadlines, looming deadlines that I have to complete and things like that. So
0: this novel was actually written over a series of what, about 10 weekends. It became an absolutely extraordinary success. And you remained in the diplomatic service as a best-selling author. Did you find that your new extra status helped with your business as a diplomat? Were people all of a sudden more willing to take your calls and turn up to meetings than they had been previously? Absolutely. As, as one fellow diplomat from another country said, Vikas, we diplomats have
1: interlocutors, you have fans. You know, and that can open up many doors for you. I remember... In 2009, when I began my posting in Osaka, Japan, as Consul General of India, generally the local governor of the place, you know, meets the foreign diplomats, the foreign consul generals in about four to six weeks time. But I got an audience with the governor within four days of landing because the governor was more interested in Vikas Faroop, the author of Slumdog Millionaire, than Vikas Faroop, the Consul General. And of course, I got many more invitations as a result of uh, the success of the book and the film, because people were interested in uh, this other part of uh, my life as well. And I used that actually to enlarge the diplomatic arena for India, because anytime I received an invitation from a Japanese university to talk about Slumdog Millionaire, I would say, sorry, I will talk about India, and you can talk about Slumdog Millionaire in the Q&A.
0: That's a partial answer to what I, the other thing I was wondering about it, in that it is always part of a diplomat's job to further and extend their country's soft power imprint. But you've created this thing, this novel, later a film, which has in itself become part of India's soft power. How easy was it to get your head around that? It must have been extremely strange. Well, see, the first thing is the
1: uh, government of India civil service rules allow you to be creative in your spare time. In fact, the rules are that you don't even need government's permission. If you are doing a literary work uh, which has been published by a reputed publisher, I do not need to show my novel to anybody. I do not need to take any permission. The only permission I need to take is I need to take permission to accept royalties because I'm already having a source of income from the government of India. So that is the first thing. And secondly, as you rightly said, promoting India's soft power is very much a part of a diplomat's armory these days. And Indian writing in English has become so popular across the world, you know, ever since Salman Rushdie and Vikram Seth burst on the scene, uh, that, uh, you know, for my book to also be seen as a part of the genre and for that film in particular to open up so many doors for Indian talent in Hollywood, I think has been very, very gratifying.
0: And if the writing bug bit you fairly late, it has stayed with you. There have been more books since Q&A. What are you working on now? So I've just uh, finished a new novel, my fourth one, and that has
1: come after a gap of almost 10 years because my last novel was called The Accidental Apprentice. It came out in 2013. And since then, I've been so caught up with all my diplomatic stuff, you know, functioning as the official spokesman of the Ministry of External Affairs, then as High Commissioner to Canada, where I discovered, much to my dismay, that high commissioners do not get even weekends free because the weekend it's the Indian community which wants you to come for their community events and they celebrate everything on a weekend whether it is Holi or diwali or christmas or easter or uh, Morram or whatever everything is on a weekend so basically i got no time to uh, even conceptualize a novel during that time but since my retirement two years ago i have had the time and the space and the luxury to conceptualize a novel and work on it and i'm happy to say that It is just about to be completed, and I'm just about to send
0: it out into the world. Vikas Swarup, thank you for joining us. That was the former Indian diplomat and international best-selling author of Q and A, later slumdog millionaire Vikas Swarup. You're listening to the Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Joining me now from Sarajevo is Elmedin Koniakovic, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Before entering politics, Minister Konyakovich was a professional basketball player representing the Sarajevo club KK Bosnia. From 2013 to 2016, he was president of the management board of the Basketball Association of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Minister, first of all, where did your passion for basketball originate? originally come from or did the sport come to you just because you grew to the considerable height that you did
3: <laughs> that exactly like that like i started with soccer you know and i was really good i was playing for the republic team it was in yugoslavia it was bosnia and herzegovina was a part of yugoslavia it was a republic you know And I was, I think, 12, 13 years old. And then I grew 13 centimetres in only one summer, actually, during the summer. And then I started to play basketball with the boys from the neighbourhood. And I stayed in basketball for around 20 years.
0: So as a player, what kind of standard were you able to reach? I know that your trajectory was extremely complicated by the war that began
3: in the early 90s. But where did it get to for you? Actually, I didn't start with some, I don't know, with big ambitions, you know. I trained for love and fun, you know. I was, I was with my guy from the neighborhood, so we were practicing basketball close to our neighborhood. It was one primary school with a good gym, and you know. And then I progressed very quickly. And then the, like, competitions in young, younger selection started. So that was a kind of a beginning, and it happened really fast, you know. And then it became really fun. So it was a start with no big ambitions. I didn't know what to expect during my career, actually.
0: Did you allow yourself, once you started to realise that you were actually pretty good at this, did you harbour any dreams? I guess this is in the early 90s of playing in Western Europe, playing in the United States, or or did you think that this was probably about the limit
3: for you? Like I told you, no big ambitions, but that when, when, when I started, actually, it was fun. And then Actually, we start to win games, to win championships, you know. I won the championship in Bosnia-Herzegovina with the club where I actually grew up. That's my favorite basketball club Babosna, which was actually European champion uh, in '79, I think, with the big stars like uh, Mirza Delibas and other players. So we won championship. I won also the championship in Romania. I was in Arad playing there, you know, a team from Arad Vespetrum. I won championship also in Narad. I also played for my country. I represented my country 10 times in the national team. So those are the biggest ranges, actually, I achieved. So um, no big plans, but actually it was good. Career was solid. It was good. We, I was paid for what I'm, I'm doing. I really loved basketball. I still love basketball. I enjoyed basketball, and I was paid for it. So that's really a beautiful part of my life.
0: How possible was it, though, to keep playing after the war began in Bosnia in the early 90s? Because I know that, you know, obviously organized sport became more or less impossible during that period. Were you able to maintain any connection with basketball at all? You were, of course, serving in the Bosnian military
3: during this period. Yeah, I didn't play basketball for the first 14 months, I think, of the war. As a minor, actually, I joined the BIH army and I defended my homeland. In the middle of 93, I think we started with some practicing with the with BC Bosna. And uh, it was a really great thing, you know, during the war, it, psychologically, it was really important, you know. From the front line, you go to some practice, to training, and then you go back to the front line. And that year we played several tournaments. Uh, in 93, I think we started. Then soon we started to play official league, you know. Uh, The gym, the hall where we we were playing, actually it was full while actually shells were falling outside and you can hear some bullets outside, but we were playing basketball, you know, it was really, um, it was amazing, you know, and after that again you go to some reality, you go back to the front line, but it was psychologically it meant really a lot for me and all my colleagues. It was not easy, we were playing during the war, actually we were running uh, in between shells and bullets and going into that big hole in the area, Uh It was not only basketball. It was kind of, uh, I don't know, like psychological uh, session, you know.
0: But do you get the sense when you think about what you do now that that background is actually helpful to embarking on a career in politics, whether it's basketball specifically or having been involved at a, a senior level in organised team
3: sports generally? Oh, yes, of course, you know. In sports actually you learn to win and more important you learn to lose you know sport develops actually work habits uh, work ethics also like in sport you learn that you learn that the effort actually you invest is returned also you know and that it pays off you know the habits you acquire um, in sports and the character also especially character you build are very important for any job you do later. You know, I think that's even more important than my official education, than my master's degree. You know, I think the sport helps me a lot.
0: Well, just finally then, and we we have touched on this subject briefly before, there is at least one other high profile in both senses of the word, former basketballer turned politician in the Balkans, uh, Eddie Rama, the Prime Minister of Albania. Have you as yet challenged him to go one-on-one? (laughs)
3: <laughs> no, I met him a few months ago. I think he was officially visiting Bosnia-Herzegovina. He's a really great guy. You can see also in his character, you can see some sports moves and sports decisions. You know, he's brave. He's like making decisions. He's creating and like, you know, you can recognize people from sport. They are really active. You can recognize their energy also. I didn't actually call him to play one-on-one. On, one on one. Maybe I will, you know. There are also a few leaders here in the Balkan region I think Vucic was also shortly playing basketball, Dodik, here in Bosnia-Herzegovina you know, also. But I can say I think I'm better than all of them. You know? So <laughs> maybe I to call We invite them to play one-on-one.
0: I was going to ask you the follow-up and who would win question, but you've answered that like a professional athlete. But I I do want to pick up on that thing you were just saying about the sports person turned politician. Do you think there's something to that, that they tend to react faster, perhaps more creatively, because that's what they were schooled in?
3: I'm 100% sure that that is like a kind of sports character, you know. It is, of course, we have our mistakes. Maybe we, are, we didn't develop some other skills, you know. But that kind of, of of character is really helping, you know. It's really helpful. Like, making decisions is much better, even if, if they're wrong, than not to have them, you know. So, I, I love people. They have energy. They are brave to decide. They're making decisions, you know. And I think from sports, they're almost all of them, that they are almost the same, you know. We have other differences, but that, that's really important.
0: And of course, the one thing you can't do on a basketball court is stand
3: still. <laughs> no, no, no. It's much easier to play than to watch, you know. When I was a general manager, they knew I'm I'm going all around the basketball court yelling on judges, you know, <laughs> asking, like, no, it was foul, not foul. I was ex- excluded a few times from the games. I was also punished with some fines you know i paid a lot of money because i was too aggressive you know it's not easy to see especially when you love your team when you enjoy um basketball you know I, I i loved my team Boston. i still love the team i love my national team of course when i'm watching the game today it's not easy you know if it's tight if the result is not so good i go to see some movie and then i'm I'm back to see if anything <laughs> changed. You know, it's not easy you know
0: that was Elmadine Konjakovic, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Bosnia Herzegovina. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. There are few more commonly deployed metaphors for politics than chess, and understandably so. Succeeding at either requires guile, patience, cunning, and an ability to set and avoid traps. Well, joining me now from Riga is someone who understands the similarities better than most. Dana Raznica Ozwala is a woman grandmaster and has served as Latvia's Minister of Economics and Minister of Finance. She's now Managing Director of FIDA, the international chess federation first of all can you recall your first encounter with a chessboard? was this an ambition of your parents to teach you chess
2: i believe that uh, this was not the ambition of my parents so we had seen the chess pieces uh, together with my brother in our childhood we've been playing with them as the, with the little toys with the pieces but uh, When I enrolled uh, for chess, I didn't know what chess is really about, how to play it, what the rules are. Is it exciting or not? I just uh, raised my hand when my future chess coaches visited uh, our school and suggested us to go in for the magic game of chess. So the next day we were there and once I entered the back then green doors of the chess club, I have never exited (laughs) since then. Can you
0: recall thinking back to yourself being eight years old a bit after what it was you liked about it? Or was it just a thing that just seemed to make instant sense to you?
2: I think it was the competitive spirit. I was just better than the others. <laughs> so I grasped the rules very well and uh, I managed to win against my uh, classmates and uh, girls and boys. This was the ma- amazing thing that I didn't feel anyhow different to being a girl and uh, I was not scared of playing against boys so for me i think the competitive part for of chess is very important and and also this um the sense that actually the game is a very intense interaction between two human beings so hmm. that's why i don't like to play against computers i don't like online chess tournaments because i need this physical interaction i i want to feel how the opponent smells. I want to see the fear in their eyes and sometimes also the happiness when they want a win against me.
0: That does presage a lot of the questions which I know arise frequently about the overlap between politics and chess and we will get to those but before I do I did want to ask as you were learning the game and as you were progressing because this is something I'm always interested in asking people who have succeeded in a field in which there are objective measures of success can you recall a moment at which you realized hang on I might not actually just be good enough to beat my classmates and beat the people at the chess club I might actually be really properly good at this
2: I don't recall uh, a special moment uh, of that. I think it was so natural because I was uh, going in for chess six days a week, four, five, sometimes even more hours per day. So somehow, also the the success and uh, was coming naturally, and uh, and I was progressing gradually. I do recall though those moments when I felt that oh I have uh, I've been stagnating so you do everything right you're working a lot you're investing your energy time love whatever you have but then you have these flat moments I mean in sports that's I think the most uh, difficult part it's the same as in life It, it, Mm. it doesn't progress evenly only upwards you have the upsides and downsides you have the failures which you have to overcome. But I think the most difficult thing is these flat lines when you are doing everything right and then you don't get out of it. You feel stuck. Is there, though, a
0: particular moment that you think of as your peak as a chess player?
2: It's already quite a while ago. My most productive years were when I was um, 17, 18, 19 years old when I became twice the European youth champion when I was working a lot, when I was playing actively, and when I was actually uh, thinking of a professional chess career. But then I decided that, no, that might not be the the way. I was interested in too many other things in my life. And I know that Kaisa, chess goddess, she's a very jealous lady. If you don't <laughs> devote yourself fully to her, she will punish you. So (laughs) that was probably the most difficult decision in my life after the secondary school when I entered university that I chose not to become the world chess champion because you cannot do other things and By the way, also win the (laughs) (laughs) roaches.
0: It is obviously a, a massively overused metaphor for politics, which is where you ended up going the idea of politics as a chess match or the realm of politics as a chess board. You would know better than most people whether there is anything to that. Is there anything you learn from being a really good chess player that is actually useful to you as a politician? Perhaps that sense of intense competition with a rival that you were talking about earlier?
2: Many things, actually. Uh, you know, being able to see the whole board, being uh, able to calculate at least several moves ahead being able to understand what are the cause and consequences that every movie of yours do have uh, does have consequences, uh, being able not to procrastinate because time matters in a chess game, but even more so in the politics. I mean, your position in politics is so unstable, and if you are given the mandate and time, you need to deliver. Otherwise, it will be too late. You know, one day you are a minister, and the second day you are in the opposition or on the street, possibly. But I think... The most valuable thing that um, I've learned from chess and that has helped me in politics a lot is uh, remembering that you are not the only one at the game. You can have your best intentions, your plans, your calculations, your strategies, but there is somebody else out there with their plans, with their ideas and motivations, and you have to count with those. And
0: working in politics as well, did you ever deliberately leverage your parallel life as a chess player in terms of opening up press interest, engaging voters? Was it something people were interested in?
2: Yes, I think the dual use of me has always been an an advantage uh, of mine. And actually, chess, for me, being a woman in politics, which is still the man's world, has helped me a lot in image creating creation, especially I remember, you know, when I was uh, a minister of finance, uh, quite often you would see that the ministers of finance are the typical alpha men, yes? So, to enter this world, for me, being not just a woman uh, minister of finance from Latvia, but being a chess grandmaster, I think uh, was easier than without this title, because people have... Uh, good impression about chess players being a chess player means that you are a smart person yeah so at least this is the presumption of uh, uh, the general presumption so so yes I've made uh, use of being a chess player in my political career but I believe for the benefit of the goal and uh, and the work
0: Dana Reznice-Ozwola thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Writing is a common pastime of politicians, and just as all political careers are said to end in failure, so do a great many political literary endeavours. Certainly for every Winston Churchill winning a Nobel Prize for Literature, there are a great many more Nardine Dorrieses who do not. Curiously, some of the least interesting books by politicians are those written by those who you might expect to be the most compelling narrators. Well, joining me from Austin is Daniel Calder, author of Dictator Literature, a history of despots through their writing. Daniel, first of all, is there an easy way to sum up what one learns about the tyrant by ploughing through everything they've written? Yeah,
4: so I think there's maybe a couple of reasons... And certainly, for some of them, it's it's, it's very appealing to vanity. And I think many dictators, if not all dictators, are extremely vain. But on a more, like, I think, fundamental level, I think if you set yourself up as a dictator, then you're proclaiming yourself an authority on all things. You know, you're not elected. You're not voted in. Also, you're maybe come to power through revolution. So unlike, say, like a king who can say, well, God put me there. Who put you there? Why are you there? What gives you the right to kind of like make all the decisions? And so I think the dictator books are often a very important part of their personality cults because they have to establish themselves as super geniuses. And so the books are evidence that this is a super genius. Like, look, look, look at my shelves. Like, There's like 25 volumes of my thoughts. I'm a genius. Listen to me. So I think that's part of it. And I should say, too, it's like it's not necessarily that they start writing once they become dictators. Very often they've been writing for years and years and years. Like, you know, Lenin was only in power for a couple of years, but he spent a good 20, 30 years writing. And so they come to power and they already have this bibliography behind them. And so some of them have this ready-made bibliography. And then others, it might be like a collection of their speeches. And there's a kind of difference between these ready-made biographies, which are before they're in power... And the kind of just stultifying lists of what they said at the opening of a Combine Harvester Factory <laughs> type thing. And then there's maybe another category of book, which is, um, you know, some of them actually have something to say, you know, some of them have some form of personal expression. And, and maybe the most striking version of that is that Saddam Hussein, you know, he had a bibliography of speeches and this and that and theoretical writings like like that was very normal, like relative to other dictators, nothing innovative. But then, towards the end of his regime, he started writing novels. And I think he wrote this novel called Zabiba and the King, which was a kind of romance novel about this king who falls in love with this girl that he sees in the street. And that one, I think there is a a personal component. You know, like Saddam is an author. He's a novelist like other novelists. And it's not the same as um, collections of speeches or theoretical works.
0: I do have myself a a box set of Saddam Hussein's non-fiction, which I bought in Baghdad in, I think, about 2001. And it fits in with the paradox that your book examines, which is that for all that these works are composed by these extraordinary historical figures, these fascinating apparitions, you know, Gaddafi, Khomeini, Franco, Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, Niazov, Castro, the books themselves are mostly really heart-stoppingly tedious. Why do you think that is?
4: Well, a lot of them aren't written by the dictators. So I think those speeches are kind of like addresses to the Congress, the Party Congress and stuff. Especially once the dictator's in power, well, everything has to be going okay. You know, (laughs) so it's not like Saddam's going to stand up at the Party Congress or Stalin's going to stand up at the Party Congress and go, you you know, things aren't looking too good. So everything's always great. And if you think about the essence of any story, there has to be some sort of conflict or something at risk. And in these regimes, at least officially, like everything is fine. And so this is the very essence of dullness, of tedium and of lies, you know. And so they're just like giant confections of lies that are very repetitive and very monotonous. And so they become extremely dull.
0: Were any of the books you encountered actually objectively enjoyable?
4: enjoyable is an interesting word to (laughs) use there Um, what happens is when you read a lot of these books your scale of judgment starts to change right so you read the first one you go man that's atrocious (laughs) you know you're maybe comparing it to an Elmore Leonard novel or something or whatever you just read last you know that's really bad but then once you've read enough of them you start comparing them to each other which is you know really the essence of criticism right you don't Hmm. you don't compare T.S. Eliot to Jeffrey Archer You compare Eliot to Ezra Pound and and so on and so forth and other, you know, 20th century poets. And so out of that, like, vast monolithic corpus of extremely bland text, which just never says anything or is just full of lies, every now and again you start looking for someone who's actually saying something. Saddam Hussein, for example, that Zabiba and the King. I don't know if I say it's enjoyable because it's a bad novel, right? It's not good. But as you read it, there are bits in it that are, like, weird. And you go, that's interesting. And then you're playing a sort of game, like, where is Saddam in here? What is he trying to say? But probably the best one that causes the least pain would be Mussolini. And I would say, and there's a very good reason for this, was Mussolini was a professional journalist, a very successful journalist, very successful editor, and he knew what the public liked. And so he'd written a serial novel before he was a dictator that was very popular, but it's kind of like pulp. But he did write a war diary, maybe 1915, 1916. So World War One, Mussolini signed up. And this was when he was changing from being a a kind of socialist to being a nationalist. Very interesting, because first of all, it's it's short, it's about 150 pages. So thank you, Mussolini. (laughs) He goes in there with this persona, like, I am the mighty Italian warrior. You know, I am going to go to war. This is going to be amazing. I love war. Listen to the bombs. It's amazing. And then it's not amazing. It's actually awful. And he gets stuck in the trench. And you can feel his disillusionment. And there's a particular scene that I think I write about in, in my book where he describes, I think he just sees a corpse in no man's land, and he watches this corpse over a couple of days, just neglected with like, I mean, it doesn't, it's not too graphic. But there's something like just so personal and human about that and his connection with this dead soldier that you go, Wow. I mean, you know, it might not be as good as you know, all quiet on the Western Front, but that is an interesting book.
0: At the other end of the spectrum, though, finally, and just briefly, even by the standards of this misbegotten genre, was there one in particular that just struck you as outstandingly terrible?
4: Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, it's like it's Mein Kampf. I mean, there's 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 <laughs> just awful. Mein Kampf is everything everybody told you it was. Because we often like to say, oh, this dictator's a bad guy, he's terrible. And they are, they're bad guys. But it's obviously just full of venom, page after page of hatred. But it's also just really badly written, incredibly amateurish, super monotonous, and just grim. And it just goes on and on and on. And, And you just, I mean, even Hitler said it wasn't very, well, he didn't outright say it wasn't very good. But he did say He did regret that he wrote it later. I think he said, I am not a writer. He he was an orator. And in fact, if you read the, the second part of Mein Kampf, there's a bit when he goes off on how writing isn't that good, really. It's the ability to speak is what counts. And so he's sort of making a kind of apology for how bad this book is.
0: Daniel Calder, thank you for joining us. Daniel's book, Dictator Literature, A History of Despots Through Their Writing, is available now in hardcover and paperback. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and to our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until
3: next time, goodbye.